Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is Pocket Dilemmas, where Kerry Law and I tackle political and economic questions which are facing the world today. In January, the Edelman Trust Barometer 2020, the largest trust and credibility survey, found that public trust in the institutions was at a record low. That was earlier this year, before the coronavirus. It said governments, according to the report, were perceived as both incompetent and unethical. After the coronavirus pandemic has taken over the world, as we've seen, things have changed drastically. A new report they've just uh, brought out says trust in the institution of government has risen across the board with an overall gain of 11 points from its uh, January survey, that's what Edelman says, to an all-time study high of 65%. The coronavirus pandemic has changed the world in that respect too. Our dilemma today, what effect has the global coronavirus pandemic had on our perception of governments? How will this crisis impact uh, populism? Will the pandemic increase our trust in the institutions? Uh, will that continue? as we've seen in that Edelman survey. What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com. The Edelman Trust Barometer 2020 is a paradox. It's a rising economic tide and a stagnating situation for trust. There's record mass class inequality. Fears are overwhelming hope. Two thirds of people say that the pace of change is too fast. Tech is no longer the most trusted in one third of the countries we survey. 80% or more believe that they might lose their job to automation or gig economy. And more than half of them believe that capitalism causes more harm. Well, that was Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman, launching their flagship report at the time of the World Economic Forum earlier this year, pre-pandemic, I should say. Now we've seen this complete turnaround, the jump in uh, governments and institutional trust is up. By the way, also in organizations and chief executives, trust is up across the board. But for how long and how is that trust being measured? Trust today is granted on two distinct attributes, competence, delivering on promises and ethical behavior, doing the right thing and working to improve society. It is no longer only a matter of what you do. It's also how you do it, according to Edelman. A growing trend we see across the board from ESG investment to delivery for companies, for everybody. This is uh, an interesting take. And I have to say, Kerry, my take on it now in the midst of this coronavirus crisis is that it was critical to restore people's trust in institutions. It remains critical to keep doing that. Now, the original research, of course, was done in the time of the growing economy. Now, of course, we don't know what will be the overall effect on global growth, how it will affect people. And in interestingly enough, Kerry, you know, when I look at this latest Edelman survey, it's okay for now. But the question is, can that trust, which has gone up as a result of the pandemic, be sustained? Exactly, Jonathan. I mean, this this new study just really shows how volatile trust really is and how important it is maybe in the time of, of this pandemic, um, how important it is to actually, you know, reinstall and reinstill trust. You know, so especially right now, there really needs to be a lot of trust between governments and their citizens. It needs to take center stage. So people are feeling more siloed and isolated than ever before due to these various pandemic-related restrictions on working and socializing. And, you know, I really wonder that if people are confined to their homes, really just more reliant on the internet and social media, 
on top of feeling incredibly vulnerable, if there's a real risk here of people growing angry and you know this fear really stoking this populist fire. And from what we already know, we know that populism breeds these neglectful policies that are gonna further implicate trust between people and institutions. So, I mean, we've all heard of this, but recently there was this statement by President Trump about how injecting disinfectant into the lungs could be this useful fight against COVID, which was shocking to hear. Um, also, don't even get me started on masks. You know, one day the Center of Disease Control says, you know, you shouldn't wear a mask, they're not helpful. The next day they say that it's highly recommended. So con confusion is evident, at least on the masks issue, just take a walk outside and look around and you can see how confused people are. So, you know, it seems to me that real leadership is lacking here, um, but, you know, maybe we're starting to turn towards experts, which is a really good sign. And let's get back to the days of science and experts, please. So, you know, I'm hoping that today we can really look at the past to draw some lessons for the present and the future and just to kind of improve trust all around. Well, I always say that in serious times like this, it's a time for serious people. And we're going to see, I guess, whether uh, in leadership that really exists and whether actually people who in the past have been perceived as not terribly serious can become more serious and rise to the challenge of, of what is going on. So we have a great lineup of guests who will help us uh, look at today's dilemma. Uh, the trust paradox. What effect has the global coronavirus pandemic been having on our perception of governments? That's what we're exploring. How will this crisis impact the rise of populism? Will the pandemic increase uh, our trust in institutions or to the contrary? Is it going to decrease it? Exactly. And today we have with us Barry Eichengreen, who's the George C. Pardee and Helen N. Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science at UC Berkeley. He's also the author of The Populist Temptation, Economic Grievance and Political Reaction in Modern Day Era California. And of course, we have Sergey Giryev as well, who teaches a course on populism at Sciences Po. He's also the author of the recent survey, Political Economy of Populism, and the leader of the Research and Policy Network on Populism at the Center for Economic Policy Research, and a moderator for Vox E's debate on, on uh, populism. And of course, he was our chief economist not too long ago. So we're all meeting here on Zoom, which is, of course, normal, uh, normal these days. We're all living on it, I feel like. And so, Barry, I'm going to start with you. Give me your quick five-second take on today's issue. I know that's kind of quick. Um, but what really is the future of trust in the institutions post-pandemic? And will the pandemic kill populism? No, it won't. I think my definition of populism is a movement that combines anti-elite, anti-other tendencies with the desire for a strong leader. We see that in some circles, the desire for a strong leader is still there. We see in some circles that anti-other, anti-foreigner, anti-China tendency is still there. Whether those strong leaders discredit themselves through incompetence and finger pointing, we will see. And whether your hopeful scenario that elites, experts, scientists are re-empowered, we will also have to see. Great. Sergey, how do you view things? I'm uh, a bit more uh, optimistic exactly because of the issue of uh, rise of trust and expertise. Crisis like this uh, draw attention to the importance of knowledge, uh, rational thinking, progress. And we do see not just populist leaders, but also medical experts, doctors, biologists, epidemiologists standing next to them and uh, being listened to. And in that sense, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic than Barry that uh, we will come out of this um, uh, crisis with greater respect for science, which uh, helps uh, saving lives, not just uh, helps redistributing dollars, but literally saving uh, hundreds and thousands of lives. I hope, I hope that it, it may work. Now, I'm also worried that 
the narrative may be uh, spun in a different way. And in that sense, uh, populists are very good in spinning the narrative. And this is, I think, where the battleground will be. Barry, I can see you want to jump in. Sergei, I, I, I hope you're right. But I think back to the 2008-2009 financial crisis and, and the role of economists. I'm not convinced respect for our expertise was enhanced by that experience. Well, Barry, you know, in your book, The Populist Temptation, you look at, you lay out this history of, of populism. You define populism as a political movement uh, with anti-elitist, uh, authoritarian and nativist tendencies. What kind of relationship does populism have with trust in, in your opinion? I think there is a clear correlation between level, levels of trust in a country or a community uh, trust in, in government in particular and the tendency of residents to vote for populist parties and politicians um, on the left and, and on the right alike. So in my book and in a study written for with co-authors for the Center for Economic Policy Research called Europe's Trust Deficit, we uh, showed that this tendency to vote for such parties was greatest where trust in national parliaments and trust in the European parliament as well was least. I think that tendency has been a long time in the making. Uh, the rise of the internet has played a role. The rise of Facebook and Twitter have played a role. They undermine the monopoly of traditional intellectual gatekeepers. So I'm skeptical that uh, the, the, the crisis will turn back the tide. So Sergey and Barry, you know, can this pandemic then make a populist government unpopular? And I mean, they, they at least often prove to be the least prepared for crises like, like this. So Sergey, what, what's your thought? Yes, this is another part of my optimism that people will see how unprepared the populist leaders are, how injecting disinfect, disinfectants or drinking the disinfectants really does not work situation with masks you mentioned as well. And we do see that populist leaders around the world are not doing a good job, honestly. And it's not just President Trump you mentioned, we also can go to Brazil. In the United Kingdom, the situation was not managed well to start with. Uh, but once again, this is the thing which Barry mentioned and I would like to mention again. Even if objective facts point in the direction that well-functioning civil service well-functioning democratic institutions, checks and balances, well-functioning institutions really help uh, solving problems like this. Still, it doesn't mean that populists will fail to convince their voters that they're better. And they've been very effective, indeed, as Barry said, circumvented, circumventing mainstream media. And uh, Barry's book makes this very important point that's not the first time in history when populists are doing that. But uh, this tide is actually quite unprecedented in terms of the number of countries run by populists, in terms of voucher of populists uh, uh, populist, uh, are getting in the elections, it's actually a very high tide. And uh, I think uh, what matters now is not just to celebrate that better leaders are doing a good job, but also convincing the people that this is actually good. I would add a couple of points. Um, num number one, I would put in a plug for uh, a, a paper that I'm writing with, uh, Sevet Aksoy, who's at the EBRD, yeah, my and Orkin Saka, which looks at 
the impact of epidemics passed on trust in government. And it's interesting that we find that if uh, individuals had an experience with an epidemic in their country, when they were in their formative years, their late teen years and their early adulthood, that has a durable negative effect on their trust in political leaders and government that extends basically over their lifetime. So part two of the question then becomes, what does that lack of trust translate into? Does it translate into uh, increasing support for out of the mainstream politicians and parties, populist politicians and, and parties? There I'm less sure at that point, but I, I do think it's a, a troubling uh, finding. And again, it doesn't point necessarily to the idea that this kind of experience with a, a public health disaster um, uh, empowers uh, scientists and experts and elites. Yeah, I'd like to uh, go into that uh, question of legacies of crises like this, actually, because I think that is an interesting one. We'll come back to that. Let me just remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. We love to hear from you. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Barry, how do you explain the trust paradox, which was in that Edelman report? Now, obviously, it refers back to 12 months before, uh, as opposed to the situation we're in now. But in their uh, report, you get, you know, we've had a year pretty much of reasonably strong economic data. Uh, preceding this report. And yet still, that's not backed up by rising levels of trust. So there seems to be a disconnect there in which, you know, good economic backdrop doesn't necessarily translate into, into trust. It's in past now, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. Another world. <laughs> in my book, I, uh, try, I, I'm forced to confront that uh, paradox. And my, my answer is that uh, economic growth doesn't automatically raise all boats. So we needed the China shock to remind us of this fact. The same is true of technological change. It benefits the factors of production that are complementary to that new technology, but it may hurt the rest. There is not only the average level of income and the distribution of income, but insecurity about future incomes. Insecurity was already relatively high before the crisis, and it surely is higher now. Finally, uh, people care not only about uh, economic outcomes, but uh, about other things, social solidarity, a sense of identity, a uh, sense that they're respected, uh, the feeling that they're valued. And there were very, very real concerns about that before the crisis, even more so now. Just, just before Kerry jumps in, because I know she wants to ask you a question on inequalities, which you sort of hinted at there and the role that plays. You just mentioned as well identity. Uh, and I think that's a key issue in all of this, isn't it? This rising sense that identity politics matters uh, to at least some groups of people and, and or perhaps to many, many voters. And interestingly enough, you know, I remember a time and we can all remember a time when we thought identity politics was something that was only talked about in the US context. And yet now it seems to have gone global. I think that's a very important strand in, in the literature on populism, that it is about economics, but it's not only about economics, that um, self-perception, identity, 
identity is a source of social solidarity, that you're part of a community of kindred souls, like-minded people, and the, the rapid changes in society and economy, the challenge of immigration is, uh, all of that is a challenge to uh, traditional identity. I think the populist upsurge is forcing us to con confront that fact and, and, and think about it. So that's the silver lining, if you will, in identity politics. Does the current crisis exacerbate that? Surely it does, because it, it, the, the response we're seeing is at the, the national level or in the United States, it's at the red state versus blue state level. It's heightening uh, us versus them politics and that those are identity politics. Um, Sergey, so Jonathan hinted, um, I'm gonna ask you a question about inequality. So Barry mentioned these concerns about inequality even before the pandemic. So will, will the pandemic exacerbate the existing economic inequalities even more? And what can we do now to stop this from happening? It's an excellent question, Katie. And indeed, part of the lessons from the previous crisis from 2008, 2009, which doesn't seem like a big crisis by now, but uh, during that crisis, many governments did not respond well and did not uh, address the concerns uh, and economic insecurities of people left behind. And these are the places, counties, regions, countries where populists had easier time to convince people that the system fails, the system leaves people behind. And so this time around, we see more massive economic response, we see much bigger packages, and hopefully we will not see the same sense that uh, people who are already vulnerable are left behind. This, however, creates this dynamic that Barry has mentioned, since these are the nation states which can raise substantial resources and uh, at the magnitude of 10% of GDP, 20% of GDP, 30% of GDP. The response is concentrated at nation state level. So European Commission has gone much farther than we thought is possible. And yet uh, what, it, what it's doing is still much smaller than the nation state can do. The same in the United States. And in that sense, when we think about institutions like EBRD, World Bank, IMF, which are trying to do a lot for the developing countries, they're still uh, order of magnitude behind of nation states. So in that sense, we will see a lot of nation, national identity reemergence simply because the response is at the nation state level. But inequality, of course, is a very important part of this equation simply because during the lockdown, you already see how things are different for people with bigger houses and smaller houses, with people who can work online, and these are usually skilled people, people whom Barry mentioned, whose skills are complementary to technological progress, to globalization. So these people who already benefited more from technological progress and globalization before the crisis now are more comfortable than other people whose jobs are destroyed by the lockdown and who cannot work in the um, distance, uh, distance mode. And so the inequalities are exacerbated by the pandemic. So the big question now is whether the states or the international organizations will at least address some of those concerns and help the vulnerable uh, more not like it happened, for example, in the UK after the previous crisis. Well, that's a really interesting observation, Sergey, which has got me thinking, because if I think back to, uh, for example, in the United Kingdom, the Brexit issue, we talked about the population being divided between those who were open to the world, 
uh, and those who were closed to the world. In other words, perhaps more open to globalization, those who were not open to globalization. Uh, now, in effect, you're painting that same divide in a, in a you know, slightly different complexion because it's the same groups of people, but actually, as you say, now seen in different ways, the people who can work from home because they're in the open to the world skill set and they have the houses and, and those who are you know, losing out in effect from uh, the events of recent years and they don't have that luxury uh, of being able to hide out from the epidemic, from the pandemic. That's exactly true. And uh, when these people return to work after the lockdown, they'll be again exposed to greater risks of uh, getting the infection, right? So in that sense, this unfairness of economic opportunities, of differential economic security versus insecurity, that is exacerbated by the pandemic. And so this is something that the government should think about to avoid the repercussions of the previous crisis. So Barry knows that recently there was a paper about the UK, how austerity caused Brexit. Uh, this paper showed that indeed the welfare reforms after the previous crisis hit, disproportionately hit people who already were insecure and vulnerable. And that created uh, opportunities for UK prize and follow-up Brexit. How's that going to play out then, Barry? I, I wish I could answer that. You know, I think um, we know a couple of facts, if you will. Uh, number one, economic and financial crises do uh, feed political polarization shifts to the, the left and the right. The problem is we don't know whether a particular crisis promotes a, a, a shift to one end of the political spectrum or the other. So I think, for example, of a very interesting study that Moritz Schularik and co-authors did on the impact of financial crises on political polarization. And they found, to my surprise, that there was typically a political shift to the right um, in, in, in the wake of financial crises, which is not what I, what I would have anticipated. On the other hand, uh, this may not simply be an economic and financial crisis. This is a existential crisis akin to war as Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and others are fond of reminding us. And those kind of crises tend to uh, result in, in greater political solidarity rather than polarization. So one can imagine a range of responses and outcomes here. I haven't been able to get my mind around what the, the future holds. Kerry, you've been looking at uh, Barry's piece in The Guardian, I think. Recently. Yeah, I have. So Barry, you know, one of your latest articles in The Guardian, you talk about the danger of unemployment linked to the coronavirus and its role in giving rise to the authoritarianism or possibly more an optimistic scenario of giving us a new avenue for unity. Can you reflect a little bit on that? For me, all roads back, lead back to the 1930s. So I alluded to that Great Depression experience in that article, although the current pandemic is very different in important respects from the Great Depression. But we saw then political shifts to the right in famously in Italy and Germany, but also elsewhere, but also political shifts to the left, say in the United States with the New Deal. So uh, again, an experience with high unemployment, chronic high unemployment, as I think we are now going to experience again, can result in shifts in, in either direction, depending on 
pre-existing levels of trust in government and, and other factors that we're going to have to discover and investigate. Where, where do you see uh, any upside on this, both Barry and Sergey? And, and, and I, I think of, for example, you know, you, you, Barry, have just been talking about the wartime analogy uh, that is often invoked by leaders here. Well, of course, after the Second World War, we had uh, the rise of multilateralism, uh, of internationalism, uh, the United Nations, the Bretton Woods agreements, which, which led to the IMF and the World Bank. You know, even when they were in the war, they were starting to think about what the post-war world would think about, do, uh, would look like. Do you think that this time we're going to see something similar? Because obviously multilateralism has been under serious attack. Internationalism has been seen to be in retreat recently. And yet this is a global problem which can only be resolved despite the nativist tendencies, despite putting up borders, as we're seeing from countries, can only be resolved by international action. Are we going to see something good at the end of this, Barry, first of all? My, my temperament is to be hopeful. Uh, you know, the argument for multilateral institutions and international cooperation in, in dealing with global problems is stronger than ever. Uh, I'm reminded also of Charles Kindleberger's classic book, The World in Depression, where he argued that the failure of cooperation and the failure of the League of Nations in the 1930s reflected the fact that uh, the longtime global leader, the UK was no longer capable of leading and the new leading power of the United States was not yet willing. A number of people have observed that we may be at another one of those transitional phases. Uh, further observation would be that multilateralism as it was constructed after World War II involved global institutions like the United Nations other than the non-membership of Mao's China. But it also uh, was, was a product of the Cold War, where NATO and the Western Alliance were constructed by the United States, partly because of the perception that there was a common external enemy uh, in, in, in the form of the Soviet bloc. So how those kind of dynamics, you, you can see analogies with our current situation in, in all those Precedents and again, I think it's very hard. To, uh, forecasting is is hard, especially when it involves the future. Yes, it's <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I fully agree with Barry. We should be hopeful there is a rational argument for more multilateralism, especially at the time of the pandemic. This is a problem that can only be solved at the global level. No nation is an island in, the, in those circumstances. If a virus persists in one country, it persists everywhere. Uh, however, indeed, we don't see a, uh, we don't see leadership in the largest uh, democracy, well, the, the, the richest democracy, the largest democracies in India. Uh, we don't see leadership at the G20 level. I, as, a, as a former chief economist of the BRDA, signed a uh, letter to G20 alongside with other uh, people. Uh, um, who worked uh, previously in the international institutions asking for more money for World Health Organization, for uh, increasing support for developing countries who are hit especially hard. And so far, we don't see fundamental changes there. At the European Commission level, we see increase in size of the package and uh, deals that we would not expect before the crisis. So there is uh, some hope for progress, but overall, it remains uncertain. So one thing I would mention is that we see how the world is happy to sacrifice a lot of percentage points of 
national and global GDP to save lives. And I think this is um, per se a sign of uh, something which has changed. We see progress, we see progress, we see how we do value human lives uh, above the economy. And that may create a dynamic for solving another global problem, which is climate change. Uh, we uh, heard before that solving the climate problems would cost us percentage points of GDP. And now we see that if you don't respect nature, you may end up with a pandemic here, pandemic there, which is costly uh, on its own as well. Now, this global recession uh, decreased oil prices, in some cases to negative values. But uh, still, I think overall on balance, this crisis, this pandemic will increase support for the green economic transition. And in that sense, I, I kind of remain optimistic. We do have a common enemy, which is climate change. And we do have an example how we can sacrifice economy for saving lives. And we know that climate change will cost us lives. I could not agree more, Sergey. Um, and, and actually, I just want to go back real, real, real fast to something that Barry had said. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk about these populist leaders really being compared to, or at least taking on this wartime uh, kind of rhetoric. Do you think that they're trying to, to appear to be wartime heroes, or you think this is a way to, that they're kind of trying to distract the public while grabbing for more power? Sergey, question over to you. Well, as Barry correctly said, populism is all about strong leaders. So the way it works, however you define populism, this is our, uh, these are moral people against corrupt elites. And then moral people are homogenous. There are no minorities within the people, so there are no need for checks and balances. So you don't need a parliament or a judiciary. You just need one person because we are all the same. We all represent the same um, nation, the same identity. So uh, populists tend to generate strong leaders, tend to be led by strong leaders. And in that sense, they want to create stronger arguments. And indeed, they need enemies. They need existential threats to mobilize the people, uh, to rally them around the flag. And that's why wartime rhetoric is used. However, I should say that, of course, in times like this, railing around the flag is observed everywhere, including in democracies. You mentioned Eidelman's uh, report, and I, I would bet my money that if we run it now, we would have much higher trust in governments in democratic countries as well. This is normal. This is a wartime scale of problems. And so we see 10, 15 percentage points increase in support for incumbent governments in all European countries now, including some populist countries. So Hungary and, and Poland have benefited from, from that crisis as well, but also a uh, French president who was not very popular before the crisis has seen increase in support and so on and so forth. So it's not clear, but of course, uh, I would say it's a natural tendency for populist leaders to create an enemy because they can then uh, explain why you don't need normal time politics. And then you mobilize everybody against the enemies. That's that's the normal, that's the normal populist narrative. So, how much are populists then aided, uh, Sergey and Barry, by the fact that actually the state will be in many countries the dominant actor for at least the next few years uh, as a result of all of this, and you know that will reinforce their ability to pull the levers, perhaps at the expense of private sector operators who we saw were quite well trusted in that Edelman survey. I think it really depends on, on how that expanded state is organized. In the New Deal during the 1930s, and uh, many 
new initiatives were delegated to the state level. So they uh, were, were not organized by the federal government, although uh, there, there were prominent exceptions, but unemployment insurance and uh, a, a variety of related programs were delegated to the states precisely because of concern on, on the part of state and local governments about what a strengthened executive at the federal level would do. Similarly, there are calls in the United States now for independent panels to oversee uh, the distribution of federal monies to small, and in some cases, not so small enterprises. So I, I don't think that there necessarily is a correlation between an expanded state on the one hand and the absence of checks and balances on the other, although there's certainly a danger. I, I, I agree. There is always a risk for, for a strong populist leader to take over the package. And we've seen that American president would actually talk about using the aid, using the package to promote his political interests. But overall, I'm not too worried about United States or European democracies. I think the tradition of checks and balances of, of um, uh, various levels of government, various parts of governments to serve as checks and balances against each other, uh, this tradition is much stronger than just one crisis. Another issue which you have to bear in mind is somebody will have to pay for the expansion of state. And so this is a critical moment. So governments now borrow those 10% of GDP, 20% of GDP. At some point, somebody will have to pay for this. So Katie's kids, I guess, will have to pay uh, for, uh, for the debt that the government is raising now. Um, and uh, either it will uh, be done through uh, increasing taxes or it will be done through cutting expenditure. And uh, increasing taxes may be too costly for economic growth. So the jury is still out to what extent the expansion of the state is permanent or temporary. And in many countries, it will be actually rather temporary when uh, countries will try to grow out of the debt like they did after World War II. And for that, they will need to give more opportunities to the private sector because that's where the growth comes from. At the same time, if you recall the work uh, of my Berkeley colleagues, Emmanuel Seaz and Gabriel Zuckman. They document how uh, top marginal tax rates on income went up quite significantly in, in the wake of World War I and again World War II. So if this is an event akin to war, we may see changes in, in taxation that are durable and persistent. And they argue that with changes in taxation come changes in the distribution of political influence as well. We'll have to see. So speaking of political influence then, Barry, you know, some, some data shows that populist leaders are really enjoying a boost in approval ratings. Does this suggest that tribalist politics might actually be immune to something like the pandemic? And, you know, or are we just all living in this kind of liberal bubble hoping for this outcome where these these um, populists stumble and fall and everyone will see the light at the end at the end of the tunnel that we should go towards you know the experts in science what do you think i for one in california definitely live in a liberal bubble <laughs> <laughs> I, I i have to paraphrase the the chinese leader who who comments supposedly commenting on the french revolution said it's too early to tell i 
go go back to the experience of uh, of the 1930s once again that this kind of experience can uh, strengthen support for those populist leaders, those strong leaders who seek to override checks and balances, or they can have the have the opposite effect. And I think it's way too early to know how that plays out. A number of the individuals we're talking about, moreover, are not classic populists in all respects. So it's interesting how President Trump has been reluctant to use his authority to under the Defense Procurement Act and so forth to override the normal ways uh, of doing business and making legislative decisions uh, because of his own pro-business libertarian bent, which doesn't uh, conform exactly to traditional populist stereotypes. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, Barry? You know, in your, in your writings where you look at the history of populism, you know, you've certainly found examples in the past where non-populist leaders have acted to thwart populism. And they've, act, they've thwarted populism by successfully mobilizing a political coalition that addresses at least the economic grievances of, of the left behind individuals who form the core support for uh, populist politicians. So how they've done that, I think, has differed by national case and by circumstance, depending on the structure of the political institutions in question. So if you are hopeful, you can see signs on the, in the political center on the political left in, in a variety of countries where uh, reminders of the extent of inequality and insecurity flowing from the pandemic are mobilizing people politically. I suppose the best known example that you might pick out would be uh, Franklin Roosevelt or somebody like that. In the 1930s, yeah. So gay. Yeah, what I'm saying, if, if you want to worry about populist leaders, you should worry about countries of operations of the BRD, in particular Hungary and Poland, where these populists are already in power and the democratic institutions are not as mature as in the United States or in Western Europe. And we see how these leaders are using the weakness of uh, checks and balances, the weakness of democratic institutions to grab more power. And this is where I would worry that uh, this uh, story that you're putting forward, uh, Kerry, that uh, they would use this uh, crisis to grab more power. This is uh, not unlike. Absolutely, and of course, um, you know, I've been keeping an eye on, or at least an ear and an eye on what's happening in Hungary. Um, and given that now there is a, um, a seems like no no term limit now for, for the president there under the auspice of um, what's happening with the pandemic, which is worrying. So question you, Sergey, on, um, on this global depreciation of trust. So it seems like, nationally and internationally, we have these closed borders. We're not sure how fast they're gonna open. There are these protectionist trade policies, the spread of misinformation. What does this mean for globalization? Well, it's uh, of course a big problem for globalization. However, there is also a silver lining here that people understand how globalization is important in the sense that people see that closing borders actually prevents uh, economy from functioning well because global value chains are so important, so much more salient now than they used to be before. And some people would not realize that. But now when you see that 
whatever you think about China, you need China for your own economy, for your own health system to work. That is, that is something that will probably provide uh, some realization that globalization is good for prosperity. It will, of course, also create a tendency to stockpile critical stuff for the next pandemic. And I think it's good. It's actually good to be more resilient for the next pandemic. Uh, but uh, however, uh, even though globalization is now naturally in retreat because of closed borders and the reopening of the global economy will also be slow, at least the mood may change in the sense that globalization is not only costing us jobs or creating um, all kinds of uh, uh, dislocations. Globalization is a source of prosperity and people may actually realize that. Let me remind you that you're listening to uh, Pocket Dilemmas and uh, our dilemma today, what effect has the global coronavirus pandemic been having on our perception of governments? How will this crisis impact the rise of populism? And will the pandemic increase our trust in the institutions? Let's try and draw some conclusions now as we come towards the end of this. So if you were to look ahead uh, two or three years, um, we may now be talking about quite a long run crisis. Uh, certainly not just in health terms, but also economic uh, terms, and then the economic impact on the political situation in, in various countries. So this is not something that will be done and dusted in a few months. If you were to look ahead to 2023, which is probably the earliest now people are really beginning to think of a return to some sort of normality as the timeline begins to spread, uh, where will we be, do you think? What, what are your concluding thoughts on this, Barry? If we do everything right, we will have brought unemployment rates back down to the single digits and we will have a strategy for managing the much heavier debts that we will have accumulated. We will have those more robust public health systems that Sergey alluded to a moment ago. I think it's important in addition that we remember the fact that this is not only uh, crisis in the advanced uh, economies in the United States and Europe and, and Japan, but it's uh, a, a crisis in the global south as well, that the virus is only beginning to show up in Africa. And if it shows up there more extensively, we'll be reminded that countries in the global south have weaker health systems, they have less fiscal space, uh, they have weaker governments more generally, and we already know that what happens in, say, sub-Saharan Africa doesn't stay in sub-Saharan -Sub Africa. So I think long before 2023, it will be important to think about what the global north needs to do about that dimension of the problem as well. More broadly, I think that globalization will survive. That's my interpretation of Sergei's position as well that it will come under political threat, but the economic arguments for globalization will remain compelling. Uh, what this will imply for our political systems, that's where our podcast started. And I, I think the jury there is still very much out. I, I actually think that the uncertainty is as high as ever. So if you look at uh, various indices of uncertainty, economic policy uncertainty, they are actually higher than in the previous crisis or even around the times of 9-11. Uh, and so predicting future, as Barry said, is difficult business. But uh, the markets seem to be quite optimistic. It's even striking to what extent the markets just lost a quarter of its value or a third of its value, given the uh, 
the scale of the recession. And the market seemed to project that in the second half of this year, the growth will resume. And by the end of the next year, the levels of GDP per capita will be back to pre-crisis level. And so by 2023, uh, we may indeed be in, norm in normal regime, but maybe even before. Now, markets are known to be mistaken often. And uh, I myself, I don't understand how the reopening will be quick and coordinated and uh, flawless and frictionless. I think we are going to discover many, many problems on the way. And uh, the issue related to the epidemic and the emerging markets in developing countries and poor countries that Barry has mentioned is the issue that is not going to go away, whatever we do. So I think we are going to see a lot of hiccups. But uh, overall, uh, I am quite um, positively surprised how quickly and how massively uh, most of the governments reacted, trying to save lives and uh, putting forward massive economic packages, much more so than in the previous crisis. And I think, I think this is kind of the source of optimism. Some um, mistakes have been understood. Uh, Barry mentioned that uh, last crisis did not increase credibility of economists and especially of bankers. Uh, but uh, this time around, I think we've learned some of those lessons. And I think that the policy response has been so massive exactly because we don't want protracted uh, depression. We don't want a second recession like it was in Europe. And uh, in that sense, uh, that uh, makes me optimistic. Kerry, where do you think uh, all this leaves your thought process? Well, you know, it, the word solidarity has been mentioned a few times um, over over the the course of the conversation. So I think we're we're entering this really great um, you know phase of national solidarity. But it's clear that there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of conspiracy theories, and blaming, and that really helps you know these populist leaders, and it really wears on trust. So you know, I can't help but to think as this crisis endures, I think it's evident that you know populist leaders can't really provide any sort of social or economic solutions to these big global problems. Um, and also, I mean, even before the pandemic, as our experts have said, there were very real tensions and conflicts in societies that are going to be waiting for us on the other side. But you know, I think overall, I'm really optimistic um, that people are going to start looking for these leaders and experience in the aftermath of COVID. I'm also super optimistic, like Sergey just said, that you know, seeing these governments roll out these packages, these economic stimulus packages, um, it was more than I expected. And, and I think the global response so far has been great. So let's hope that the global response is just as positive when, um, when this, epi this epidemic, this pandemic actually does uh, enter the global south. I like the fact you're an optimist. I have to say I'm a bit of a pessimist on this. And, and the reason is that, you know, we are only a few weeks into this crisis and it's going to be a very long run crisis. Um, and I think there's going to be clearly a lot of very fearful populations uh, and not just fearful about their health, but as unemployment and the very deep recession bites, just fearful about their general economic future and the futures of their families and their children. And I think that's just such a classic breeding ground for populism as we've seen so often, even over the past decade, as we saw so often, you know, I'm a great believer in history as well, a bit like Barry, you know, as you go back to the 1930s, and I often do go back to the 1930s to think about it, you know, the breeding ground for leaders who wish to seize that is very fertile. Uh, and, you know, it might end very badly in the, you know, but for a while they can really exploit that. Uh, I think one of the big questions for me this time is, so there is a big opening for populists if they can exploit it, but it will come down to their competence. 
Uh, and the question is that once they've exploited, whether they can be competent in that exploitation. And there, I think history really is not necessarily on the side of populists. I think that uh, generally, uh, you know, this has been something that's lacking. And there, I think there is room for optimism that in the end, more serious leadership will emerge. But, but again, I'm a bit you know, split on this because we have not seen an age of great leadership generally over the past decade, whether they're populist or non-populist leaders. This has not been a time of strong leadership for many, many years. You know, I know I sound very old when I say, but I think I would have to go back to 70s, 80s, possibly early 90s for decent leadership. You know, you, it's a long, long time in many countries since very decent leadership. Uh, and it really is up to the non-populist leaders to raise their game. Uh, and we're going to have to see whether they're capable of that. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, Barry, thank you very much. Sergey, thank you very much. Kerry, it's always a pleasure to see you, of course, and to be with you on this podcast. Um, you've been listening to Pocket Dilemmas. It is our podcast, which explores the political and economic problems shaping the world. Review us on iTunes. We love that. It helps others to find us. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Kerry and I love to receive your mail. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ebrd, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.